in medieval art and literature, Judas was commonly portrayed in the most grotesque depictions and with very hideous features. In fact, all the way back in the second century, it was written about Judas that he was so vile that his body filled with bile and magnets and erupted, splattering everywhere. Always, and rightly so, Judas is regarded as the most thoroughly despicable and contemptible person who ever lived. He emerges from the background of the gospel story to betray our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Tortured in the very throes of his own self-execution, he can't even do that effectively. In fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 that he fell headlong, so no doubt, when he went out and hanged himself, either the rope broke or the branch broke, but something broke, and he fell to the rocks that were beneath and he burst out from his entrails. And so, hours we are now before that horrendous suicide, and uh, before another day dawns, Judas would die. But it's Thursday night at Passover time. We're going to back up in time a little bit. And in John chapter 13 and verses 18 through 30, Judas comes face to face with Jesus, and Jesus is going to unmask the betrayer. Up to this point, though, Judas was referred to as different ways like this. Jesus would refer to him indirectly like, one of you is a devil. That's found in John chapter 6. But here the identification becomes unmistakable. As they gathered on this Thursday night of the final week, the disciples and Jesus in the Passover room or the upper room as it's often called. Now, as I mentioned in our introductory remarks, the deed was already done in terms of the deal. And Judas had already been paid 30 pieces of silver for the betrayal of Jesus. He just needed to look for a place which would eventually be the Garden of Gethsemane. But on this particular occasion, Jesus is going to unmask him. And that's the first step in activating his own death. And as we begin our text and as we begin this scene, I want you to picture in your mind's eye that one that is Judas, the vile betrayer, one that is the ultimate hypocrite, is sitting there among the twelve. And just pause for just a minute and think about how it must have been for Jesus, knowing the entire time, we'll get to that in just a minute, knowing the entire time that he would be betrayed. But sitting among the people, sitting among the apostles, was a vile hypocrite. He would die, though. Judas would. He would die before Jesus would even be tried by Pilate. Let's just back up just a little bit and get the setting here. Because I think that there are two verses that lead in to what we're going to talk about. So going back to verse 15, for example. It says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. In other words, do as I did. Remember that? You remember when the disciples in Matthew chapter 18, when the question was asked of Jesus, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember what Jesus said? The Bible says he took a little child and he placed the child in the very midst of them. And he said, except you be converted and become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The idea was, is they wanted to know who was going to be greatest. You know what Jesus does so remarkable going all the way back to verse 15? He's going to teach them a lesson of humility and a lesson of servitude. Now, verse 16, 
He says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent is greater than he who sent him. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ was the master, and yet he humbled himself and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. Now Jesus says, I want you to do that. You may want to know who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but I'm telling you this. You need to learn a lesson of humility and servitude. And what I'm doing for you, I want you to do for each other. Now, then in verse 17, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Now, the word happy means blessed. A similar word is translated blessed in the Beatitudes when it talks about blessed are this and that and so forth. They that mourn for they shall be comforted and so forth. The word blessed means happy. It means content. And that's what he's saying in verse 17. He's saying, if you know these things and you do them, happy are you or blessed are you. So we've got the setting. We've got the principle that he established. And now we go to verse 18. Now picture this. The 12 are there. They're behind locked doors one more time, eating the Passover feast, instituting the Lord's Supper. And notice what happens in the next verse. He said, if you do what I'm just telling you, blessed are you. Then verse 18. He said, I do not speak concerning all of you. Now, in other words, the blessing that I'm talking about is not for every one of you. And that brings us to the very next thing. He is unmasking the betrayer. I want you to understand that when Jesus does this, he's doing so for a very important reason. He is unmasking the traitor and he's saying, betrayer, and he's saying the betrayer or the traitor is anticipated and nothing is a surprise. So what does he say? He gave this great lesson about humility and servitude. He said, you're going to be happy or blessed, but not all of you. And he said this, for I know whom I have chosen. Very important. You know, I think it's very important that they understand that Jesus is not tricked. Do you remember this when in the New Testament, when in the Gospels, when on repeated occasions, I think there's at least four, maybe five times that I've counted, when Jesus said to his disciples, O ye of little faith. They had little faith. They didn't have, it wasn't that they didn't have any faith, they just had little faith. So many times they had little weak faith. Now I want you to picture this, if you will. Jesus is saying, I want you to know that something's going to happen, but I've chosen every one of you, and I chose every one of you for a purpose. And there's nothing that I don't know. He's saying, I know whom I have chosen. And obviously, he is talking about Judas. Now... If, for example, if, for example, the disciples would have thought, wait a minute, the Lord was surprised or shocked. We've been following him and all of a sudden he talks about the kingdom and all of, that's going to be established. And if they believed that the Lord was stunned or shocked when they would find that there was a vile betrayer among them, I think it would have shattered their faith. They were already shattered. Remember what happened? Remember when Peter said, oh, I'll never deny you. I'll stand in there. I won't forsake you. I'll be standing in there with you even if I got to go down with you, Peter said. And Jesus says, Peter, 
before the cock crows, you'll deny me thrice. Okay? I want you to picture Peter, even standing there warming his hands at the fire of the enemy. Do you remember what they said? Oh, you're one of them. Your speech betrays you. And Peter says, and this is awful, but the Bible says that Peter, cursing and swearing, said, I know not the man. What about the rest of them? The Bible says that when they came to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, all forsook him and all fled. You know why? They were weak and fragile and frail. And Jesus had to prove a point. He was letting them know, don't be mistaken, I know every one of you and I know Judas. I know Judas. I know whom I have chosen. I didn't make a mistake. I know every one of you. I chose every one of you. I know what's in your heart. I know what's going on in your life. And by the way, even today, even today, the Lord knows every one of you. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. Sometimes people don't behave the way that they should behave in various aspects of their life. And sometimes people think that they get away with it because people that they really love don't know about it. Or because people that they worship with don't know about it. And they think they got away with it. It could be things done in private. It could be things done in just a, with a select few that don't know you're a Christian. But make no mistake about it. The Lord knows everything. He knows your heart. He knows all of it. He is never tricked. He is never misled. He is never misguided, and he never makes a mistake, ever. He didn't then, and he doesn't now. Now, he says this, I know whom I have chosen. i got to make a little side point here, okay? John Calvin actually thought or believed that this was talking about somebody's eternal election. And using this passage to say, you see, even Jesus said, I know whom I have chosen. Hence, Calvinism, where a person is chosen or picked for salvation a long time ago and you had nothing to do with it. That's not talking about this chosen here. This chosen is talking about chosen as an apostle. How do I know that? Well, let's look. In John chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? So, it's the choosing of an apostle that he's talking about. He knows. He said, I know whom I have chosen, and I am nobody's victim. Now notice. Interesting. I know whom I have chosen, and why did I do it? That the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. You know, this is a prophetic quote taken from Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9. Notice, here's the passage. Even mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, Jesus knows that. He knows Judas is going to be the traitor. But he says, I chose him because the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, also in the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17. And may I just say this? People get a misunderstanding about what the Lord's Prayer is. And they think it means, well, the Lord's Prayer. In fact, you can even look in your Bible. And it will say over that most of the time. 
the Lord's Prayer. And just say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Blah, blah, blah. That's not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer that the Lord prayed. That's his prayer. Brother Darren prayed just a moment ago. That was Darren's prayer. We, as he was praying on our behalf, said amen. Therefore, it became all of our prayer. Don't you understand? If it's a prayer that's the Lord's, it has to be a prayer that the Lord prayed. Why did he say those words where he answered, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. Why did he say that? Because they came to him and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he said, here's a little model prayer for you. If you're going to pray, when you pray, pray this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, or when the kingdom comes, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know the rest of it. Everybody knows those words. That's not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer that Jesus prayed. And one of those prayers was found in John chapter 17. Let's look at John chapter 17 to show that Jesus knew everything. Here it is. John 17 and 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, notice, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, perdition is eternal punishment. Now, interesting about that. Interesting about that. You know, we're not the judge of anything. We're not. But the Bible is very clear. Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. Perdition means those that are lost eternally or eternal condemnation. When Judas killed himself, and the Bible refers to Judas, it said after that he went to his own place. What is that talking about? He went to a place where lost people go. He was lost eternally. Now hold that thought for just a minute. Judas betrayed Jesus all on his own. It was his own choice. It was his own choice. I don't believe for a minute that God made Judas commit this terrible act and then condemn him in a devil's hell as a result. That's not what happened. We have to look further than that. We have to give God more credit than that. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. He knows everything. There's nothing he does not know. What does God know? He knew that Judas would come into this world and Judas would betray Jesus and in doing so, it fulfilled scripture. Little side note here too. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? Adam and Eve were in the garden. And God instructed them on what they could have. And we know the story. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God knew that Adam and Eve would fail. He did. You know why? Because the Bible says, known unto God are all his works from the beginning. That means this, that Jesus Christ to come to this world and die for the sins of the world was not an afterthought and it was not a contingency plan. It was the plan because God knew man would sin. Just like God knew Judas would betray Jesus. Let's look further. 
It's not just Psalm 41 that looks forward to Judas. The New Testament also points backwards. Psalm 55 and verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, that I could hide from him. In other words, it was an enemy. If I could have protected myself if it was an enemy, but it wasn't. It was a familiar friend, a companion. Then Psalm 55, verses 20 and 21. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So, Jesus, Judas, excuse me, is pictured as the betraying friend. Then also it's clearly depicted in Zechariah's prophecy. One final thing. One final passage. Zechariah chapter 11, 12 and 13. Does it sound familiar? Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you to give me my wages, and if not, refrain. That was last time, by the way. What happened last time, last sermon. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. That's exactly what happened. Now, incidentally, do you remember when Judas went back with the money and said, I can't take the money? I have betrayed innocent blood. Do you remember what they said? They said, see you to it. I think the King James renders it like this. See ye to that or to it. You know what that means? That means that's your problem. He came with the money and says, I can't take it. And they said, that's your problem. I'm going to tell you something. Going back to when they were in cahoots with one another, they were right there in, in there. They were right there together. And when the chips were down, and that's what happens in the world of sin. When the chips are down and you look around, you got nobody holding the bag. And here it is. Judas brings the money back. And they said, that's your problem. But then they couldn't put it back in the treasury. You remember why? Because it was the price of blood. It was blood money. You know what they did with the money? They put it to purchase the potter's field. What was that? That was the place in a cemetery, for example. We even have that today called the potter's field in various cemeteries. You know what it is? It means that if somebody doesn't have a family member, they don't have any money, nobody knows where they came from, they have to be buried, right? No funeral. They just dig a hole, put you in a pine box, and put you in the ground in the potter's field. goes all the way back to the days of Jesus. Now, then verse 19. Then verse 19, just to show that Judas is not a surprise to Jesus. Very important that the disciples understood this. Verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes... That when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So that's point number one. And there are four points. They'll go quickly now. Point number one is the traitor is anticipated. Jesus says basically it's coming. He's basically saying, I know it's coming. I know who it is. I know whom I've chosen. And I chose him anyway to fulfill Scripture. Now, the second point. The traitor is announced. 
Jesus is going to announce it in verse 20 and 21. Now, the announcement's coming in verse 21, but the question is this. Have you ever stopped to consider, if you ever looked at these passages, why is verse 20 in there? Verse 20 is almost inserted there, and I think there's a reason. Notice, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Why is verse 20 in there? You know what the Lord's saying? God sent me, and I sent you, the apostles. Jesus says, when they receive you, the apostles, they receive me, Christ, and if they receive me, they receive the Father. All of a sudden, that's plugged in. Why is that? Well, this is very familiar language. In fact, it sounds like language where Jesus was commissioning his disciples. You find statements like that in Matthew 10. You find it in Mark 9, Luke 9, and also in Luke chapter 10. It's commissioning language. He's saying this, I am giving you a commission. I think there's a wonderful lesson here. Please get this. The Lord is saying this, keep your eye on what is exactly what you're here to do regardless of the traitor that's among you. Even though there's a traitor among you, you have a greater commission to take the gospel to the world. It stands out as the most important thing. And when people go and people receive you, they receive me. When they receive me, they receive my Father in heaven. You've been commanded to preach the gospel, and that's important for them to hear you know, there's a hypocrite among them. Do you know why people always point out the hypocrite? Okay, I got a point here. Stay with me. Do you know why people always pick out the hypocrite? And that's not the topic I'm going to discuss today. But people always choose or pick out the hypocrite to justify their own lack of obedience. That's why. In other words, if I can look over there, I don't want to do what's right. But if I can pluck out somebody that acts like they're doing what is right, but they're not, they're really a hypocrite, it can justify my lack of obedience. You know what the Lord is saying? He's saying even though there's a hypocrite among you, even though there's a vile traitor among you, it doesn't change the commission. And may I say that to you too. If there are hypocrites ever among us, it doesn't change the mission. It doesn't change the message. It doesn't change the commission. It doesn't. And at no point in time, folks, at no point in time are we ever justified for giving up, turning back, not doing what's right because somebody else made that choice. There's never, ever that call. Notice, we must live godly in an ungodly world no matter what. And I think Jesus was saying this too. Nothing is going to stop the message. Nothing at all. Then he said this, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit. You know, there's a number of times in the New Testament where the Bible talks about Jesus being troubled in his spirit or groaning in his spirit. How many hundreds of times, I don't know, maybe thousands of times, did he sit there right in the very presence of Judas from the very beginning? Maybe he was troubled because he would be condemned, Judas would. I don't know. I don't know. 
Maybe he was troubled because he knew that one that he poured his heart out to, a disciple, would return such love with bitterness and hatred and greed and contempt. All I know is this. Here's the commission no matter what. But Jesus was troubled in spirit. You know, something about the fact that Jesus was fully human. I'm so thankful that our Messiah was fully human. Not just fully divine, but fully human. You may think in your life that there's someone in the world that nobody in the world could possibly understand how you feel. Or the challenges that you're going through or the temptations that are coming your way. And sometimes we do that. We say nobody could possibly understand. That's not true. And when it comes to the temptations that prey on our weaknesses, sometimes we say it's just too great and nobody can understand. And yet the Bible says that Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That means whatever temptation you've had in your life, the Lord has had that temptation. The difference is he did not sin. He did not give in to the temptation. He did not succumb to it and commit sin. He did not. Maybe he was troubled because he would be heading to the cross. And remember this. Remember, when Jesus was in great agony... And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, the agony that the Lord went through was the very fact that he would have to bear the sins of the world on Calvary's cross and bear the shame, Hebrews 12 and 2, and be separated from his Father while doing so. That was the greatest agony our Lord ever faced. So he says this. He's troubled. And then he said, it testified and said, most assuredly. Now, that's a very important word. In fact, the words most assuredly, or sometimes in the, New, in the New Testament, it says verily, verily, or truly, truly. Okay? Do you know that that phraseology is only found three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? But that phraseology is found 33 times in the gospel according to John. Do you know why? Because John's gospel is filled with declarations. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Most assuredly, I say unto you. Truly, truly, I say unto you. The gospel of John is filled with that. Look, right in the same two verses. Most assuredly, he says right there. Here again, most assuredly. He's making declarations. And here it is. Here it is. Here's the declaration. One of you will betray me. He's continually emphasizing truthfulness and he says, one of you will betray me. So not only is the traitor anticipated, but the traitor is also announced. But I'm going to tell you, can you imagine how it must have been for the rest of the apostles? They're stunned. They're stunned. And that brings us to our next point. That is the disciples were astonished. In verse 22... Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed or astonished or amazed or confused about whom he spoke. Remember in Matthew's account, remember what they said? Is it I? You know, sometimes if you have a great genuine heart, if you really have a genuine heart, and somebody points something out, 
If you have the right heart, it doesn't mean you're guilty, but you might say, was it me? If somebody was offended by something, you might say, oh, I didn't think I did. Was it me? It's that spirit. You know, in Matthew's account, you know what they said? One by one, is it I? Master, is it I? Who is it? They had no idea for whom he spoke. Now, there was somebody that was leaning on the breast of Jesus, and it was John in verse 23. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, I want you to picture this. Why was he reclined on him? He was reclined on him because of the U-shaped table. Now, they didn't have tables like we have. You know, you sit at the table, slide the chair under. Didn't have that. Didn't have that. You know what they had? Really low table. They would have these little couches. And what they would do is, around this U-shaped table, the host would be in the middle... And he would recline on his left arm or his left elbow, his left side. It would free up his right hand so he could reach over on the table and get something to eat. You know where John was? He was right here. You know where Judas was? He was right there at the position of honor. He was at the position of honor. Notice what happened. Oh, and by the way. Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper depiction, okay? It's not a snapshot or a photograph of what happened, okay? They didn't have 12 men sitting there, lined up all on one side of the table looking at the camera, okay? It's not how it was, okay? That's a human depiction of that scene that's not even true. Now, it was low to the ground. They were reclining. Judas was on the left, Peter wasn't close. Peter wasn't next to the Lord. And we're going to find out some, something about this. And may I just say too, to our Roman Catholic friends, Peter was not directly connected to Jesus. John was. And Peter had to get information through John. Just saying. If Peter was going to be the head of the church, don't you think he'd be in a different position? But he wasn't. Peter was an apostle. The Lord is the head of his church. Period. John had to intercede. Notice what happens in the next verse. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was whom he spoke. Do you know why? Because John was right there. So Peter motioned to him, who is it? And then verse 25. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Kind of like this. Here's John. He gets the motion from Peter. Ask him who it was. And John kind of reclines back and looks back to Jesus and asks, Master, who was it? Who is it? So the disciples are astonished. What else? That brings us to our final point. And that is the traitor is addressed. The Bible says, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now, other gospel accounts say it's he that dippeth with me in the dish. In other words, whoever was dipping in the dish at the same time, eating this meal. Here it says, Jesus says, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. This is unmasking the betrayer. 
Now, just maybe Peter and John were the only ones that knew. I don't know. I don't know how loud the Lord said it. Maybe they didn't, the others didn't know what was going on. Judas had been allowed by the Lord to be in a position of honor, seated there on his left. In a gesture of amazing honor to Judas, he gave him a morsel as if he were the honored guest. It was a mark of special affection, a place of honor, a place that you would have an intimate friend. Now, notice what happens. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Here it is. He told John, John, it's the one that I'm going to give the morsel to after I dip it. He dips it. He turns to Judas as you would a position of honor, and he gave him the morsel. You know what happened, folks? You know what happened in verse 27? Hell showed up. Hell arrived. Watch. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him. You know, the only one that can know that Satan entered Judas was Jesus. But he's saying this, and please get this. I'm done with you. The Lord is saying, I'm done. Go and do what you must do because time is short. Now, what does it mean when it says Satan entered Judas? It doesn't mean that he was now possessed with a demon. That's not what that means. What it means is he was now completely influenced by the devil. Okay, back up a little bit. Let's talk about us. Does there ever come a point in time when we could say, or the Lord could say, that Satan entered us? I'll tell you how. And by the way, that's why you can't dabble in sin. Because when you dabble in sin, you are influenced in part by Satan. When you totally reject the Lord and you go all the way into sin, you now are completely influenced by Satan. You know what that's called? Satan entering you. That's what that means. No wonder we got to keep things out of our life. We've got to keep the devil out of our life. That's why Jesus said, by the way, in all of his parables, and we talk about the things of this world and so forth, he says you've got to stay away from that. You can't dabble in it. You can't say, I'm going to hold hands with the Lord with one hand, and I'm going to hold hands with the world with the other. You can't do it. You know why? The world will always win. It does. Don't dabble in it. But one more thing, though. Look here. He says, what you do, do quickly. Now, that's a command. He is telling him, do it. Do it quickly. He wanted him gone. He wanted him away. You know why? Jesus needed hours to make promises, wonderful promises that will begin to unfold immediately in verse 31 and go all the way down through the rest of their time together. Now, but notice this, please. Satan had entered him to carry out the greatest efforts of hell, but he actually was going to carry out the greatest effort of heaven, the greatest effort heaven ever made to rescue sinners. So he says this, go ahead and do it quickly. I just wonder, though, is there a time in our life 
when we repeatedly reject what's right and we repeatedly choose sin. I've wondered this my whole life. I just wonder, does there come a time at all when the Lord says, I'm done? Does a person ever get to the point where they are so far gone, they're so far away that they can't come back? Now, we know that there is no sin that could not be forgiven. Every sin can be forgiven if we'll confess it. But is there such a time when my mind has turned to the devil or turned to the world or turned to sin so much and turned my back on the Lord that it's too late? I'm just throwing that out. I'm not making a point. I'm asking the question. I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. With Judas, Jesus was finally finished. In verse 28. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. They're still reclining. There's this private conversation going on. And notice what they thought. For some thought that because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast or give something to the poor. They had no idea what he meant. Jesus turns to Judas and he says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And the rest of the apostles didn't know. Maybe only John and Peter knew. Maybe that was it. The rest of them had no idea. They had no idea. When Jesus made the statement, what you do, do quickly, he was activating his own death. He knew this was step one in the activation of his own execution because nothing will happen until the trigger is pulled and Judas is the trigger. And finally, in verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. You know, it was not only night on that occasion, but it was night forever. It was eternal night. Judas, though, practically would never see another daylight. But really, eternal night fell on Judas. So what do we learn from all of this? What can we possibly learn from what happened with Judas? Everybody knows the story that he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What can we learn? Here we learn in closing. We learn the following. Maybe we might say, no, wait a minute. We learn things like the dangers of money and power. Maybe we learn something like that. Maybe we learn about materialism. Maybe we learn something like that. Maybe we learn how not to be a hypocrite. Maybe we learn something like that. I don't know. But you know, all that I just said is not the point the Lord was making. It's not the point. These might be elements, but here elements, but here's the point. Jesus wanted his, wanted his disciples to know this. That it does not matter what a man will do, even if they're among God's people. If they turn and do that which is wrong, it doesn't matter. It's not going to thwart the purposes of God. Nothing will. And people can throw stones at the church. They can throw stones at the Lord. It doesn't matter. They can throw stones at you and it will not matter. The purpose of the church will still continue on. The commission will still be there. And guess what? Nobody's getting in the way of God. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody's getting in the way. Nothing's going to change the plan. And you know what? What seemingly was the tragedy of the cross was actually the triumph of redemption. And what looked like Satan's victory was Satan's defeat. I want to show you one more passage and I'm finished. 
Okay? It's the words of Joseph. Terry talked on Joseph last time, I think. Okay? I'm going to mention Joseph in one verse. You know what Joseph said a long time ago? This is what he said right here. Genesis 50 and 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What an amazing statement. Incidentally, did you know when you talk about Joseph, there's at least 42 instances where Joseph is a perfect type of Jesus? Did you also know that there are 106 exact parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus? The entire point is this. God is sovereign over everything. There's nothing that God does not know. So Joseph said, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. Judas meant evil, but God meant it for good too. He used it. Now, let me just say this finally. God does not make, I'm going to say it again. I don't want to be misunderstood. God does not make bad things happen to people and make people do bad things. And then punish him for doing that to carry out his purpose. I don't believe that for a minute. God is the refuge. But that doesn't mean that God does not take what someone has done, even if it's bad and evil, and use it for his purpose. God meant it for good. There are things in our life that sometimes are difficult. And sometimes we wonder it's not fair. Sometimes we look at things in our life and we think, man, that was just terrible. Now, on the other side of that, there are good that can come from it. For example, if something happens bad to one of you that's really, really terrible and not your fault, don't you understand when you don't blame God for that? Now, there was a terrible thing that had nothing to do with God. But when you stand for what's right and you act with your faith and people see your faith, you know what happens? God gets the praise immediately and God can use that for good. And look at the influence that the church has as a result of your behavior or as a result of your reaction to something bad that happened to you. People can mean it for evil. God can use it for good. We'll talk about these things moving forward. We'll talk about some of these good things that we're talking about moving forward as we pick up at this place next time. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.